You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is the final chapter in the amazing adventures of Ibn Battuta. Last time, our Moroccan explorer had come to the end of his journey in the Far East, reaching the capital of the Mongol Empire, Beijing. He had then retraced his steps through China to the southern port of Chenzhou. Today, we are going to follow Ibn Battuta home, a place he had not been to in nearly 25 years. And you would think, hey, that's a great story. A quarter of a century through North Africa, East Africa, Arabia, Persia, Turkey, Russia, Afghanistan, India, the Maldives, Sumatra, and China. That's pretty epic. Time to go home and write a book or start a blog about the experience. But you know what? Ibn Battuta had one final grand adventure ahead of him, a trek through the Sahara Desert to the lands and kingdoms of West Africa, including the legendary empire of Mali. It is one of my favorite parts of his book. But first, we have to get Ibn Battuta from the eastern side of Asia to the far western side of North Africa. As I said, Ibn Battuta was at the port of Chenzhou, where he had first landed in the middle of 1345. A quick note about this journey back to Morocco. Ibn Battuta's book, The Rihala, is light on details about this part of the story. It is, after all, a return journey, often crossing the same territory he had already been to before. But things will pick up considerably when he gets back to the Middle East. So let us get rolling with our return to Morocco. Ibn Battuta wanted to return to the west, and thus he found himself passage on a Chinese junk owned by the Sultan of Samudra, al-Malik al-Zahir Jamal al-Din, the man who had helped him get from Sumatra to China the previous year. Soon he was off to the Samudra Passe Sultanate, a.k.a. northern Sumatra, on the winds of the fall monsoon. He says the ship was caught up in a storm, and they spent 42 days in unknown seas until they realized where they were. However, Ibn Battuta says the crew extorted from him a wildly unfair amount of money for this passage, and he lost much of the wealth he had collected in China, and thus Ibn Battuta found himself again penniless. The ship took him through the Strait of Malacca and up to the northern tip of Sumatra to Samudra. There, Ibn Battuta was welcomed by the sultan, spending two months at the king's court and even attending the wedding of the sultan's daughter. He also received some nice gifts from the sultan. From Samudra, it was west across the Indian Ocean, past Sri Lanka, into the Malabar coast, reaching Quillen in December of 1346 or January of 1347. He then headed to Calicut. Ibn Battuta again found himself on the shores of the Malabar coast, pondering his next move. He had probably accumulated a bit of wealth, but not much. 
He considered going back to Delhi and throwing himself at the feet of Muhammad bin Tughlaq and asking for mercy and his job back, but he quickly rejected that idea. The Delhi Sultanate was in a constant state of turmoil, and Muhammad bin Tughlaq had become increasingly erratic. Ibn Battuta decided the best move for him was to just keep going. He thus decided to return to Arabia and go on another Hajj. By the way, Mohammed bin Tughlaq would die of an illness in 1351, outfighting rebels and traitors to his realm. Some historians believe he was mentally unstable at the time of his death. It is interesting to note that Ibn Battuta had met many of the great leaders of Central Asia, and almost all of them had died in his lifetime. In addition to Mohammed bin Tughlaq, Abu Sa'id, the Sultan of the Ilkhanate, had died in 1335. Uzbek Khan of the Golden Horde had died in 1341. Ala al-Din Tamashirin of the Shagutai Khanate had died in 1334, mere months after Ibn Battuta had visited him. These deaths would cause instability in their respective regions, and in the case of the Shagutai Khanate and the Khanate, caused the fragmentation of those realms. Ibn Battuta does not describe his voyage from the Malabar coast to Arabia. He only says that it took 28 days to reach Dofur in modern-day Oman on April 13, 1347. Ibn Battuta had been here before, 18 years earlier. Ibn Battuta had reached Arabia just after the previous year's Hajj, and thus he had nearly a year to wait for his next pilgrimage to begin. So what would he do in that time? Well, let's travel. Before the summer monsoon season hit, he took a coastal vessel northeast and sailed into the Gulf of Oman and to Ormuz, the entryway to the Persian Gulf. However, there was a problem. As I mentioned a minute ago, these lands had descended into conflict over the past decade or so. There were Mongol, Turkish, and Persian elements vying for power, and the Ilkhanate had broken into a cluster of small states. And even within those states there was fighting. The ruler of Ormuz, an old sultan, was involved in a civil war with two of his nephews. This disrupted trade to all the area ports, which caused a famine in the region. Ibn Battuta did not meet with the old sultan, as he had more important things to deal with due to the civil war. After two weeks in Ormuz, he headed overland, the goal to reach Baghdad. For this, he went to Shiraz, Isfahan, and Basra before heading up the Euphrates River, basically retracing the steps of his 1327 journey. Ibn Battuta reached Baghdad in January of 1348 and then moved on to Damascus. It was here that Ibn Battuta received two pieces of tragic news. First, back in 1326, he had married and then divorced a woman in Damascus. Well, that woman had had a son. Here, Ibn Battuta found out that the boy had died in 1336 at the age of 10. And second, a Moroccan scholar at one of the local colleges in Damascus informed Ibn Battuta that his father had died in Tangier approximately 15 years earlier. His mother, as far as the scholar knew, was still alive. Death had thus struck Ibn Battuta, and to be honest, it will be a major theme in the coming year or so. And that is because Ibn Battuta had reached the Middle East, just as the greatest pandemic disaster in recorded history was about to sweep through the area and into North Africa and Europe, the bubonic plague, a.k.a. the Black Death. The Black Death is the most fatal pandemic recorded in human history, causing the deaths of between 75 and 200 million people. It had come out of Central Asia and was now moving into the Middle East. The pilgrimage of hundreds of thousands of people to Mecca would only aid in the spread of the disease. Ibn Battuta spent several weeks in Damascus before going west through Syria and Egypt in the summer of 1348. His goal was to do his Hajj by going up the Nile River and then crossing over to the Red Sea and catching a boat to Jeddah. From there, it was a short trek overland to Mecca. 
Ibn Battuta was joined on his Hajj by a pair of North African men, and they went together through Judea and Gaza to Alexandria and then Cairo. Along the way, they saw abandoned fields and depopulated villages. In Baghdad, Ibn Battuta reported that the deaths reached 2,000 people per day. In Cairo, it was 1,000 plus per day. It is estimated that when the plague hit a town or a city, a third of the people did not survive it. Ibn Battuta remained in good health, but he doesn't mention any steps he or his companions took to avoid being infected by the plague, other than not to linger in any place too long and keep moving forward. In addition to catching the plague, the other big risk was the collapse of basic social order. Soldiers, administrators, and laborers, they were dying just like the rest of the population, and it led to some dangerous situations. Ibn Battuta stayed in Cairo only a few days before heading up the Nile, a step ahead of the plague. As planned, he went overland to the Red Sea and took a boat to Jeddah on the opposite shore. Then it was on to Mecca. Ibn Battuta stayed in Mecca for four months as the guest of a Maliki religious leader, awaiting the beginning of his Hajj. Thankfully, the Black Death would not reach Mecca that year, and Ibn Battuta was able to complete his fourth and final pilgrimage. Next, he headed back to Cairo, although this time taking the overland route through Medina, Jerusalem, and the Sinai. Ibn Battuta was 45 years old. He had been traveling for 24 years, more than half of his life. Ironically, his homeland was a place he knew little about. Fez was a city known for its prominent Maliki religious and legal scholars. That appealed to him. Plus, there was his family, including his mother. Of it, he wrote, quote, I was moved by memories of my homeland, affection for my family and dear friends, who drew me toward my land, which, in my opinion, was better than any other country, end quote. Ibn Battuta thus went from Cairo to Alexandria, where he boarded a ship, his destination, Morocco. Ibn Battuta sailed west along the northern coast of Africa, arriving in Tunis a few weeks later. Now, it was here that Ibn Battuta came to really grasp the changing situation in North Africa. The Marinid Sultanate, which controlled the northwest area of Africa, had expanded during the years Ibn Battuta was out traveling, reaching as far east as Tunis. For a while, it seemed the Sultanate was invincible. However, the Sultan, Abu al-San Ali ibn Uthman, had overextended his reach. Add in his desire to have a firm grip on the notoriously independent Arab tribes in the region, and it meant rebellion. The arrival of the Black Death further destabilized the region. Soon, the entire Sultanate was engulfed in fighting. When Ibn Battuta arrived in Tunis, the Sultan was there, trying to bring to heel his rebellious subjects. Ibn Battuta knew it was not safe to travel overland, so he hopped on another ship to take him further west. The ship, however, did not just head along the African coast. Instead, it first went north to someplace new in Ibn Battuta's long list of lands, the port of Cagliari on the island of Sardinia. The ship did not linger long on the island, as there were rumors that the locals were going to make an example of any Muslim travelers that they could find. The ship thus quickly moved on. Ten days later, Ibn Battuta arrived at the port of Tanis, about 500 miles or 800 kilometers west of Tunis. From there, it was a trek overland through the mountains and dodging some bandits along the way before reaching Fez on November 8, 1349. It was on this journey that Ibn Battuta encountered some travelers coming from Tangier, his home. They informed him that the Black Death had reached the city and his mother had succumbed to the plague a few months earlier. So Ibn Battuta had reached Morocco, no doubt stung by the death of his mother. Still, he would have had old friends and family to connect with. You would think he would settle in and catch up with all of these people after so long, right? Well, no. Within a few days, he will be off again, this time to Spain. Spain? What the heck? You're probably wondering why Spain. Well, let me explain. 
Much of Spain and Portugal had, at one point, been conquered by Muslims who had landed on the Iberian Peninsula from Africa in the 8th century. While the threat of the Moors, as they were known by the Europeans, was a dire one in the eyes of Christian Europe, to them the security of the entire continent was at stake. And thus, for hundreds of years, there had been a slow, gradual retaking of the Iberian Peninsula by the various Spanish and Portuguese kingdoms. This was called the Reconquista, the Reconquest. Well, in Ibn Battuta's lifetime, the last Islamic stronghold in Europe was the Emirate of Granada, basically in the mountainous southern tip of Spain. The Moors had recaptured the crucial port of Gibraltar in 1333, and in 1350, just as Ibn Battuta got back to Morocco, King Alfonso XI of Castile and Leon was threatening to attack the port, and if Christian Europe held Gibraltar, it threatened Granada and North Africa. And so the call went up to Muslims to come to Gibraltar and protect the port, and thus the 46-year-old Ibn Battuta signed up for the fight. Ibn Battuta went to Ceuta, the port opposite Gibraltar, where he spent several months recuperating from an illness. It was not the Black Death, but more likely a bout of malaria. He then sailed for Gibraltar in March or April of 1350, which was only 22 miles from Africa. But when Ibn Battuta arrived in Gibraltar, he found the threat to the port had ended. The Black Death, which had been sweeping through Europe, reached Spain, where it claimed the life of King Alfonso. Gibraltar was safe for now. Ibn Battuta stayed for a time with the Cadi of the city before doing a sightseeing tour of Granada. He traveled east, up the coast, visiting cities such as Malaga, Alhama, Vega, and then the Emirates capital, Granada City, which had a population of about 50,000. The biggest excitement was when Ibn Battuta and his party just missed some Christian raiders who had landed along the coast. Ibn Battuta went to the court but could not garner a meeting with the Sultan, which was no doubt disappointing. However, the sultan's mother did send him some gold coins. Money was always welcome. Ibn Battuta found Granada to be a splendid place. It was refined and beautiful. It had been mostly protected from conflict by the region's mountainous terrain. This isolation had helped it become a center of learning and the arts. While in Granada, Ibn Battuta stayed with some Maliki scholars and at Sufi lodges. At one point, he was invited to the home of one of the city's most prominent legal scholars, it was at this meeting that Ibn Battuta was introduced to Abu Abdallah Muhammad Ibn Juzay, a young secretary in the local government. Ibn Juzay's family came from a literary tradition, and he was already writing poetry and compiling works of history, law, and philosophy. In a few years, after moving to Fez, he will be given the job of writing down the stories of Ibn Battuta. Ibn Battuta would eventually make his way back to Morocco. He went to Marrakesh, but found it a ghost town due to the plague. He next went to Tangier and then to Fez in the fall of 1351. As a side note, Gibraltar would be retaken by the Spanish in 1462, while Granada would hold out until 1492. That would end the Moorish occupation of the Iberian Peninsula, and thus the Reconquista. Now, I want to talk again about the regional politics. The Marinid Sultan, Abu al-Hassan, had been pinned up in Tunis for a bit. While there, his son, Abu Anan, proclaimed himself Sultan. Well, Abu al-Hassan attempted to reclaim his throne, but his fleet ended up being wiped out by a storm. He then tried to rally his forces in Algiers, but was defeated in battle. Another attempt by Abu al-Hassan to retake his throne ended in defeat in 1350, and he agreed to abdicate to his son. He went to a retreat in the Atlas Mountains, but died the following year after an illness. And thus, when Ibn Battuta returned to Fez in the fall of 1351, the Sultanate was calm and Abu Anan firmly in power. And so Ibn Battuta was home, but not for long. 
because he will have one final grand adventure left in his quiver, a trip to sub-Saharan Africa, including the legendary kingdom of Mali, the last stronghold of Islam that he had not gone to. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Ibn Battuta was headed to West Africa, or as he called it, the land of the blacks. Why he went, we don't know. Across the Sahara was the kingdom of Bali and the source of immense wealth, especially gold. But there's no specific reason for his journey to these lands. Now, before we set off on this adventure, let's back up to the year 1324. And that was when the ruler of Mali arrived in Egypt on its way to Mecca for his Hajj. The ruler, Mansa Musa, had crossed the desert with a huge retinue of 60,000 slaves, servants, soldiers, wives, and court officials. There were a hundred camels just to carry his gold. Ah, gold. Nothing gets the heart pumping more than gold. One source that I read said at this time, West Africa produced two-thirds of the world's gold. And here is Mansa Musa showing off to the world just how wealthy he was. It created a sensation as he flooded the Middle East with wealth and charity. Mansa Musa had brought so much gold, its value was depressed for years. Mansa, by the way, means king in Mandinka. The Mali Empire had been formed in the early 1200s, and in Ibn Battuta's time, it was at its peak. It was located just under the Sahara Desert and stretched inland for 1,200 miles, or 1,900 kilometers, from the Atlantic Ocean, much of it along the Niger River. In the 2nd century, caravan routes had first been established across the Great Sahara Desert, going to the North African coast, as well as into Sudan in the Middle East. The key to these caravans were the camel, which could carry up to 150 kilograms, or 330 pounds, and go for 10 days without water. These routes across the desert were immensely valuable and difficult to follow. One mistake meant death. In time, there developed a sophisticated trade network across the Sahara. 
Islam had come to Morocco in the 7th century, and Berber merchants brought the religion to the lands of the Mandinka, Fulani, and Wolof. This new religion would provide a bond that went beyond race and tribe. It's something Ibn Battuta had used to his advantage many times in his life. Mali was now the great kingdom of West Africa, sending gold, ivory, ostrich feathers, ambergris, hides, and slaves to the north. In return, the desert caravans brought textiles, cloth, copper, silver, spices, wheat, books, paper, metal goods, perfumes, jewels, and horses. Horses, by the way, did poorly in sub-Saharan Africa due to tsetse flies, whose bite could be lethal. The Malian cavalry was one of the finest military forces in the region, and they were always in need of fresh horses. And so it was the autumn of 1351, and Ibn Battuta got ready to depart Morocco. Some historians have suggested that he was the envoy of the Sultanate, as Morocco and Mali had enjoyed good relations for many years, but that is just speculation. Ibn Battuta departed from Fez on September 11, 1351. He crossed the Atlas Mountains and made for the desert town of Siljamasa. The town was the last outpost on the northern edge of the Saharan trade routes. It was a bustling trade center, caravans departing for the south or passing through on their way to the Mediterranean coast. Today, the place is in ruins, the once vibrant frontier town swallowed by the sands of the Sahara. Here, Ibn Battuta bought some camels and began fattening them up for the journey across the Sahara. He spent four months in Siljamasa, waiting for the winter traveling season. Ibn Battuta set out in February of 1352, part of a caravan led by some Masufa Berbers, a herding people of the western Sahara who were the predominant guides, drivers, and guards for these expeditions. The journey into the Sahara Desert was fraught with peril. Each day pretty much went as the one before. The caravan would load up the camels at dawn and then march until the sun rose and became too hot. The loads were then taken down and the camels hobbled so they wouldn't wander into the desert. Simple tents were then set up to protect everyone from the scorching sun and hot winds. When the sun began to set, the camels were loaded up again and the march continued until nightfall. Rinse, repeat. By the way, trying to walk in the desert during the day was madness. A person could literally overheat and die in the sun. And to try and venture into the desert without a guide was sure death. Going across the sands required specific knowledge to get you from one waterhole to the next. A single mistake could mean the death of everyone. The caravan trekked through the Saharan sands for 25 days until they reached the salt mines of Nagaza. Ibn Battuta was not impressed by the oasis. It was treeless, grim, and desolate. The water was brackish, and all the food had to be shipped in by camel. He described the dry salt lake bed that was mined by slaves. The slaves cut the salt, which was very valuable, into thick slabs and then loaded it onto camels. The local mosque and other buildings were constructed from salt blocks. By the way, I haven't talked about how important the seasons were to trade in the desert, and the simple reason was heat and availability of water. Regarding temperature, I found this information. During the month of January into Gaza, the average high temperature is 78 degrees Fahrenheit, or 25 degrees Celsius. In July, those numbers are 119 degrees Fahrenheit and 48 degrees Celsius. Again, that's an average high, not a record or anything. So to try to make the trek in the summer months is simply impossible. Ibn Battuta spent 10 miserable days into Gaza before the caravan continued on the last and most difficult leg of the journey, which was to Walata on the southern edge of the Trans-Saharan trade route. Only one watering hole existed along this leg of the 500-mile trek. These lands receive less than one inch of water in an entire year, and the routes are difficult to follow. Ibn Battuta was told stories of demons haunting the dunes, no doubt to keep people from wandering off the main trail. He tells of one man falling behind from the main group, 
his body later found by another caravan. Water was so scarce, a local scout was sent ahead to Wallada to arrange for camels to bring water back to the incoming caravan. Finally, in April of 1352, Ibn Battuta's caravan arrived in Wallada. The long slog across the Sahara was over. The caravan had taken two months to cross the desert from Siljamasa, which was a journey of 1,600 kilometers, or 1,000 miles. Wallada was a bleak, sweltering town of about two to 3,000 people and made up of mud-brick buildings and a few palm trees. It was, however, the provincial capital of the area, so there were government offices. Ibn Battuta, per custom, went to the governor to pay his respects. Here, he was turned off by the local custom of the governor not addressing him directly, and instead speaking to him through a spokesman. He thought it was rude, and he felt there was a possible racial bias against a lighter-skinned man such as himself. Also, he disliked the integration of local tribal customs into many parts of everyday life, which he felt should be governed by Sharia law. And he found that the locals were lacking in basic religious instruction. He thought the local scholars were decent people, but he was appalled by their lapses of good judgment, such as the segregation of men and women at an event. One time he was invited to the home of a local scholar, but left when he saw the wife of the host chatting with another man. That, Ibn Battuta felt, was a huge no-no. After several weeks in Walada, Ibn Battuta set out for the capital of Mali, along with three companions and a Masufa guide. Now, here we have a problem tracking Ibn Battuta, because we don't know exactly where the Malian capital was. We do know that Ibn Battuta traveled for several weeks to reach the city, including along a river that he believed to be the Nile, but was likely the Niger. He says he passed village after village, trading with the farmers for rice, millet, chickens, milk, and other necessities. He said that he didn't have to go with a caravan or need guards for protection, as the sultan kept the roads safe and secure for travelers. The sultan, by the way, was Mansa Suleiman, the brother of Mansa Musa, the famed ruler who had brought all that gold to Egypt 30 years earlier. Ibn Battuta reached the Malian capital on July 28, 1352. Word had been sent ahead about his approach, and thus a house had been set aside for him in the quarter for merchants and scholars of Maghribi origin. The city itself is described as a sprawling, unwalled town in hilly country. The sultan had several enclosed palaces within the city. Now, upon arriving, Ibn Battuta was not immediately invited to the court of the sultan, which annoyed him greatly. And then, after ten days, he found himself in his sickbed after eating some of the local food. It was so bad, he and several others would be ill for two months. Another man died from eating the same meal. Once healthy, Ibn Battuta was finally brought to the court of Mansa Suleiman. It was a lofty pavilion packed with hundreds of slaves, soldiers, administrators, and visitors. There was a ceremony, which Ibn Battuta noted, incorporated African customs. He did not like that many of the female slaves and servants were exposing parts of their body not befitting a good Muslim. He notes that even the daughters of the sultan were guilty of this crime. Such things deviated from Islamic law. No matter, Ibn Battuta was eventually introduced to Mansa Suleiman, the king of Mali since 1341. The king wore a gold turban, and when he talked to Ibn Battuta, it was through a spokesman. We have seen this before, and Ibn Battuta thought it was rude. The meeting was uneventful, and Ibn Battuta was not impressed. He believed he should have been treated with more respect. Afterwards, gifts would arrive at Ibn Battuta's residence. Here, he finally thought he was going to be shown the respect and honor befitting someone as important as himself. In other parts of the world, he had been lavished with horses, camels, gold, silver, slaves, and other luxuries. Surely the sultan, one of the richest men in the world, would see it fit to give him lots of cool and valuable stuff. The result was a bitter disappointment, Ibn Battuta saying, quote, I got up thinking it would be robes of honor and money, 
But behold, it was three loaves of bread and a piece of beef fried in gardy, which is a kind of butter, and a gourd containing yogurt. When I saw it, I laughed and was greatly surprised at their feeble intellect. End quote. Ibn Battuta does not hide his contempt for the sultan, contrasting him unfavorably to his brother, who was legendary for his charity and generosity. It would be two months before the sultan again paid attention to him, and Ibn Battuta took the moment to challenge the man, saying, quote, I have journeyed to the countries of the world and met their kings. I have been in your country for four months, yet you have not treated me as a guest, and you have not given me anything. What shall I say of you to other sultans? End quote. There was no doubt this was a challenge and an insult. The sultan brushed off the criticism, saying he had not even known Ibn Battuta was in town, to which it was pointed out that he had met with Ibn Battuta months earlier. The sultan gave him no explanation and offered him a house to stay in and an allowance of gold. Ibn Battuta never got over what he thought of as an insult, saying the sultan, quote, is a miserly king from whom no great gift is to be expected, end quote. Ibn Battuta would spend eight months in the Malian capital. For all of his criticism of the people, their customs, and the sultan, he does praise Mansa Suleiman for being fair and pious. He also gives the sultan high marks for running a stable and safe empire. Ibn Battuta departed the capital on February 27, 1353, accompanied by a local Malian merchant and journeyed overland by camel to Timbuktu. Timbuktu, located on the Niger River, holds a spot as one of those legendary places in the annals of history. However, at this point in time, it was not yet important. It had a population of about 10,000. It was growing as an important trading hub and as a religious and cultural learning center. There were Maghribi and Sudanese scholars coming to take up residence at the colleges and religious institutions, but the heyday of Timbuktu was still a couple of centuries away. On the journey, Ibn Battuta encountered a hippopotamus for the first time and noted that they were greatly feared by the Niger's boatmen. The massive animals were not above attacking a canoe and could easily swamp such vessels. The locals hunted them with lances. Ibn Battuta would thus only stay in the city for a few days before heading down the Niger in a boat, which he noted was a canoe made from a single tree. His next destination was Gao, an important commercial center at the time. After a month in Gao, which was also called Kaka, Ibn Battuta decided it was time to head home. He had, after all, crossed most of the Malian Empire from west to east. But instead of simply retracing his steps, Ibn Battuta decided to go home via a different route, which is a very Ibn Battuta-like thing to do. He thus set off with a large caravan into the desert for the oasis of Takeda in the east. From Takeda, the trade routes across the Sahara ran north to Tunis, east to Ethiopia, northeast to Egypt, and northwest back to Morocco. Ibn Battuta figured he could catch a caravan in Takeda, going across the desert to Siljumasa in Morocco. The journey through the desert to Takeda was a difficult one. One of Ibn Battuta's camels died along the route, and he fell ill. Others had to help him reach the outpost, where he was taken in by members of the Moroccan community to recuperate. Takeda was the site of a copper mine, but other than that, it relied strictly on trade for its livelihood. It was a grim place, filled with slaves and a never-ending flow of merchants and traders. Here, Ibn Battuta bought himself a slave girl. Now, Ibn Battuta says that it was at this time that he received a message from the Sultan of Morocco commanding him to return home. Now, that the Sultan of Morocco was tracking down Ibn Battuta in the middle of the desert is sort of weird, if not impossible. Perhaps he was trying to make himself look a little more important by adding this to the story, or maybe he had received orders earlier to come home. The Sultan Abu Anan may have been anxious to have Ibn Battuta's report about the political and commercial situation in Mali, as trade with the empire was very important to the Marinid Sultanate. 
No matter the answer, Ibn Battuta set off for Siljamasa in September 1353, accompanying a large caravan transporting 600 female slaves. The caravan would trudge its way slowly across the desert from waterhole to waterhole, finally reaching Siljamasa. Ibn Battuta then went on to Fez in early 1354. And with that, the travels of Ibn Battuta were now over. And while his adventures are complete, Ibn Battuta still had a story to tell. He got an audience with the Sultan, Abu Anan, who was impressed enough with his life tale to have him narrate his travels to a scribe. And thus we get the return of Ibn Juzay, who Ibn Battuta had met in Granada a few years earlier. Ibn Juzay had come to Fez for work. As we talked about, he came from a family of scribes, and he was an accomplished poet. He was known for his compilations of history, philosophy, and religious works. The two men would meet regularly for the next two years, until December of 1355. Ibn Battuta had no diaries or journals to draw upon, but he probably had written down notes to help with the narrative. The result was a gift to the observers concerning the curiosities of the cities and the marvels encountered in travels. That is quite a mouthful. Instead, it simply became known as the Rahala, the travels. Ibn Juzay says he only wrote down an abridgment of all that was told to him by Ibn Battuta. Also, it's unlikely that Ibn Battuta fact-checked the book, so the errors that do crop up may simply have been communication mistakes between the two men. Also, as we have discussed, there are parts of the Rahala that are suspect. Again, these may have been exaggerations by either of the two men to flesh out parts of the tale. Another thing, Ibn Juzay appears to have copied passages from other travelers and inserted them into Ibn Battuta's story. This is mostly when describing places, such as the cities of Damascus and Mecca. This sort of thing was not uncommon for the time. No matter, the book was a remarkable tale. It covered 29 years and 117,000 kilometers, or 73,000 miles. That's extraordinary. Regarding the Rahala, I think one of the really great things about it is that it allows the personality of Ibn Battuta to really emerge. This isn't the case for something like Marco Polo's amazing work. In the Rahala, we get to experience and understand this unique man with a thirst for seeing what's over the next hill. He's a Muslim gentleman of the age. He's pious, tempestuous, judgmental, and even petty. Yet he's also intelligent and insanely curious. Again, it's so rare for such an old source to reveal the personality of the author in such a fashion. So after the publication of the Rahala, Ibn Battuta quietly faded away. The writer of his tale, Ibn Juzay, died in 1356 or 1357, not yet 40 years old. As for Ibn Battuta, he is only described as becoming a Qadi in an unnamed town. That's pretty much it. He was only about 50 years old at the time he narrated his story, so it's likely he married again and had children, but we don't know for sure. He died in 1368 or 1369. Where he died and where he was buried, we do not know. And so Ibn Battuta was gradually forgotten. Some writers of the age tossed shade at the man, calling him a braggart and a liar. They simply couldn't believe all of his tales, saying they were too outlandish to be true. But you know what? That's often the thought process of a provincial mind. The unwillingness to look at the world beyond where you have been and what you've experienced. No matter, the memory of Ibn Battuta faded, and his books were destined to be set aside on some shelves in various libraries across North Africa. No doubt Arabic scholars knew about and even read Ibn Battuta's book, but it was mostly unknown to the world. And that takes us full circle to our first episode in this series and the reintroduction of Ibn Battuta to the world. It began in the early 1800s as fragments of the Rihala were uncovered and translated by Western scholars. Slowly, the full Rihala was unearthed and translated, a process that lasted well into the 20th century. 
Historian and Orientalist Hamilton Gibb published the first full English translation of selected portions of the book in 1922. He then set out to publish an entire annotated translation into English in four volumes. He only did three volumes before his death in 1971. The fourth volume was prepared by Charles Beckingham and published in 1994. I am indebted to those books. Anyhow, the reintroduction of Ibn Battuta to the world did not necessarily mean his story was embraced by everyone. For one thing, works from non-Western sources were often treated with suspicion and disdain. And then there's the stuff in Ibn Battuta's book that raises red flags, the copied passages, the incorrect information, that sort of thing. Was this guy even a real person? Was this just a big fictional travelogue? Well, in time, more and more research has come out in support of the authenticity of Ibn Battuta's travels and his book. I don't think anyone believes it's 100% accurate, but there's evidence to support that Ibn Battuta did many of the things he did and went to many of the places he describes. Just like with Marco Polo and other writers of the age, we have to do our best to understand the caveats of the story, which is fine. In the end, the Rahala is a remarkable tale and a unique record of the Islamic world of the 14th century. And Ibn Battuta is a fascinating man whose wanderlust gave him the courage and determination to travel tens of thousands of miles in an age where men often didn't go more than a day's distance from the place of their birth. We are talking about 73,000 miles, or 117,000 kilometers. And even if some of that is questionable, that's absolutely huge. By comparison, Marco Polo went 15,000 miles, or 24,000 kilometers. That Ibn Battuta went so far into so many places is mind-boggling for this time in history. People just didn't do that. It makes him, distance-wise, the greatest traveler in history. Now, the big problem facing Ibn Battuta and the Rahala was the simple fact that the existence of the book was not known for nearly 500 years. It languished on the shelves of libraries in the Arabic world. This is very much unlike the works of Marco Polo, who so many compare to Ibn Battuta. Marco Polo's works were critical to the thoughts and dreams of European explorers for hundreds of years. To reach China and meet the Great Khan was the goal of men such as Christopher Columbus. Ibn Battuta didn't get the chance to have that influence due to his writings being forgotten and lost by most of the world. The cool thing about Ibn Battuta is that he has become famous. Maybe his name isn't as recognizable as Marco Polo, but he's still acknowledged as one of the great travelers in human history. That is an amazing thing, as hardly anyone knew about the guy until about a hundred years ago. I think that awareness of Ibn Battuta and his journeys will continue to grow in the future. I think one of the challenges to such awareness is the lack of any single identifying achievement of a Moroccan explorer. With Marco Polo, if you ask people, they'll say he traveled to China. However, Ibn Battuta doesn't really have that sort of achievement associated with him. That he traveled all over the Islamic world just doesn't resonate in the minds of people, even if it was an incredible achievement. The other thing about Ibn Battuta, as I noted in the first episode, is that he never really ventures off the edge of the map, unlike someone such as Marco Polo. He goes to amazing places, lots of them, but he rarely ventures into places completely unknown. One of the great things about Ibn Battuta's work is how he does go to so many places and gives us insight into the world of those locations. His travels to East Africa and into the lands of the Golden Horde, India, and the Maldives, and Mali are some of my favorites. There is so much rich information, and you get a real feel for these places. Another indication of the growing recognition of Ibn Battuta is the acknowledgement of him in today's culture. The airport in Tangier, his hometown, is named after him. There are books, video games, and TV shows, and all sorts of media about the man. The Rahala has been translated into a bunch of different languages. In Dubai, there is a theme mall named, appropriately, the Ibn Battuta Mall. 
It has areas designated to recreate the exotic lands that he visited on his travels, which I thought was pretty cool. In time, as others discover the story of Ibn Battuta, I expect awareness of him and his travels to continue to grow. And that, my friends, is the end of this series, the story of one of history's great travelers, Ibn Battuta. I hope you've enjoyed it. I want to give a big thank you to one of the show's fans, Robert, and his wife and her family. They were able to provide a lot of guidance regarding some of the facets of Islam, which was important since our subject was a Muslim. I appreciate it so much, and again just have to say thank you to them and others who help out the show in ways such as this that are invaluable. So that's it. Thank you again for being a part of this great journey. Please take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Please go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows. A couple of first-rate history shows include History Tea Time and Pax Britannica. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.